God in heaven, we just celebrate today. What a gift it is, a privilege it is to worship you in space in the morning uh, with our people. May it not be lost on us what a gift this is ever again. May we cherish it and celebrate it. Uh, may you uh, join us in this place and remind us of your love, a love that transforms, a love that tells the truth, a love that brings us closer to you. <clears throat> in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So for those of you that have been with us for the past few weeks, we're in this series called Sacred Space. And North Liberty folks, I invite you. I'm glad that you're joining in, in the middle of this now. So Sacred Space, we've been trying to think about what it means for our church to suddenly own a space when we haven't already. And for North Liberty folks, what it means to be giving your space to a new church, to be selling your space to a new church, but joining in with that. And we need a theology of space to help us understand space. So that's last week. We're good. Started up with the sacred space slide. So um, if you've been with us, then what we're trying to show is the presence of God is what makes space sacred. The presence of God is what makes space sacred. And the whole Bible describes kind of the journey of the presence of God that makes sacred space. He then gets left off by our sin and separates from us, leaving no sacred space. And the rest of the Bible is him now recreating that sacred space where heaven and earth can overlap. So to be clear, sacred space is not just like I go in the woods and then I pray and that space is sacred. I'm talking about where the presence of God, the life-giving, wisdom-giving, powerful, manifest presence of God overlaps with physical space. And so let's give a quick recap where we've been so far. We saw the creation where I described that God made all of creation for the purpose to be his temple. For him to rest in creation and dwell in the temple. Does he need a space to dwell though? God has everything he needs. So he actually doesn't need a space to dwell in. But he made it to dwell with us, his image bearers in his temple. Giving us a unique function in creation to mediate his presence to the rest of creation. He had a special partnership made for us where if we would surrender to his order giving ways. We would enjoy communion with him forever. And through that expand his presence into the rest of the world. But humans, from the beginning, insisted on doing it their own way. And we've joined in that participation of that sin, doing it our own way, insisting on our own functionality for culture, for the order of creation, our own order. And because of that, God's holiness could not be with us anymore, and humanity was separate. And at that point, we went from all of space being sacred, made for God's presence to dwell, to no space being sacred. God was separate from his people. This is kind of confusing for us to understand. Usually we kind of function with kind of one of two uh, philosophies. It's either a deism where God creates, but he's way far away anyway, so he's next kind of nowhere, and we're kind of left on our own. Or this uh, pantheism where God is fully present and overlapping with everything, where God is in this stage and in that tree and in this chair, and he's all the way overlapping. But the Bible presents this notion of special sacred space where God's presence is allowed to dwell without obstacle. And after the fall, there was none of that. God could see and know all things. He observed all things, but he did not grant his presence to be anywhere. And it's that those two tensions are the rest of the Bible. You're like, man, I don't know how to read these in that page and this or that verse. And it's got some obscure, weird data. The whole Bible, though, is God's desperate desire to be with his people and human, humanity's desire to rebel, and those uh, directions are intention. And then the next part of the story, though, is the promise. 
which shows that God insists on overcoming that obstacle. He insists on letting his desire to be with us went out over against our rebellion against him. And so he makes a promise to Abraham to start creation all over. He's like, I'm going to start with just you and your family and your land. And through you and your land, we're going to bless all peoples and all lands. And then that brings us to where we are today, the tabernacle, uh, when God reestablishes his presence with us. And so let's uh, go to Exodus uh, 24, 15 through 18 to see kind of the beginning of these two things where God's presence is not allowed to be where sin is. So for him to be with us again, he's got to deal with sin. Check this out. Verse 15 through 18, Exodus 24. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud, and now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So this is that period when God is still this transcendent, all-consuming fire. Humanity cannot be in his presence without significant efforts being made to make them holy first. And only Moses can go up there. But when Moses is up there, this is what God says to them. He gives commandments to the Israelites, and he says, and have them, the Israelites, make a sanctuary for me. A sanctuary is a special, sacred place. Why? So that I, God, may dwell with them again. He cannot dwell among them unless the space is made sacred and made holy and where sin is overcome. In accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So from the fall until this point, this is like mm, 450 to 500 years after uh, the promise made to Abraham. Long time. If you lived during that, those five centuries, man, you're just in the slog of the middle of the story. And it's like all you can do is wait and hope that God will finally respond. And so we're in this phase now where God is now ready to finally make a new place for heaven and earth to overlap. For God's life-giving, powerful presence to commune with humanity again, but he has to deal with sin first, but it shows his desire to dwell among them. And so the next four chapters are severely boring. If you were in your little daily quiet time and you're reading two or three chapters a day, when you come up on the next two or three, you better have a cup of coffee in your system and take a few deep breaths, man, because it is lots of detail about what this tabernacle is going to look like and how long it's going to be. And they're measuring in cubits. And you're like, I don't even know what that is. I'll just fill in the gap. It must be about this many inches. And so various materials, and it needs to be this arrangement and that. And you're like, okay, let's get to the part where it actually makes sense to me again. And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to skip all that and go to verse 28. Oh, let me read this quote. Thank you, my slide people. This is Mark Sayers kind of showing this tension between God's Desire to be with us, but our sin that stands in the way that's kind of kind of show us how the temple is going to work. It says to protect humans from the death that would occur if they entered the fullness of his presence in their unclean state of fallenness and fleshly rebellion, his presence now would, would now have to be mediated and partial. His presence will be mediated through fire, cloud, sacrifice, temples, curtains, and codes of purity. There could be a relationship, but only mediated through religion. There still cannot be full life in his presence. Does the relationship remain fractured? 
That's the point of the story we are in. God's presence is attempting to flood us again. Sin remains in the way. The tabernacle is beginning of the biblical story of sincerely dealing with it. And all this is going to culminate in the gospel in Jesus, which I will show you soon. So let's go now to Exodus 29, where the story picks up again um, after various instructions. Verses 35 and following, I'm going to read about 11 verses here. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, just as I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them. Also every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall offer a sin offering for the altar. When you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it, seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. This is that after the tabernacle has been built, we're now going to start to do some offerings here. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And with the first lamb, one-tenth of a measure of choice flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. Then the other lamb you shall offer in the evening and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing odor and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak to you there. I will meet with the Israelites there, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord your God. So this passage is going to show us three quick things of how God's going to deal with those competing directions of his desire to be with us and our sin. So number one, that we are contaminated by sin. This passage will show us that, yet God wants to be with us anyway. And so he has created this special place for him to dwell uniquely, and there he says every single day, you need to offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. This is the way that human beings who are still contaminated by their rebellion cannot enter the presence of God. And so every single day, you need to offer a bull, he says. And if you're like, man, why is this the story? Why would God do this system? This seems a little bit tedious and kind of crazy. And why are we doing this? And the very root of that question is kind of the sin we're talking about. Where we hear God's story and we're like, no, I might have done it a little better. I could have probably come up with a more convenient story, a little easier to understand, a little better to relate to. This is kind of confusing to me. That is like the root of like, I think I could come up with a better way of doing this if I could do it my way. So try to set that aside and enter into the story open-handedness, open-handedly to see how it may show us who we are. But so even though there is sin, we have to hear that reality, the fact of a daily death of a bull reveals that sin remains in the way, that sin has not been dealt with. But in spite of that, it says four different times in like three or four verses that God will be with them. I want to be with them. And when I'm there, I'm going to speak with them. I'll meet them there. I want to dwell among them. I will be with them. There's one or two diagnoses of some sin in that passage, followed by four affirmations that he still wants to be with us. And so there's so many times that I've seen the church either don't talk about the sin at all, 
or forget or, or talk about the sin so much that you're left feeling like God does not want to be with you. And we have to hold those intentions to say sin remains in the way, and yet God wants to be with you. And when he wants to be with you, there he will speak with you. This is crucial. Imagine when people break trust with you, you're thinking, oh, man, if I have to be around them, I'll tolerate them, but I'll remain cold. You shut down, you harden your heart, you do not want to reveal yourself to them. You don't want them to know you. You feel like they cannot trust kind of to, to be trusted with your vulnerability. And that's how I, I mean, I know people in my life right now who I still have tension with that I withhold truth about where I am in life. I don't want them to know the good, the bad, any of it. I want them to stay away from me because I don't trust them because they wronged me. But not God. He's like, these people have rebelled against me, but I want to meet with them there. And when I'm with them, I want to talk to them. I want to reveal things about myself to them. I want them to still know me. I'm still going to trust them with a special revelation coming from me. This is how much God is willing to persist and stay with us. And he wants more than he wants anything from you, more than he wants to be over you, more than he wants to be your boss. He just wants to be with you. That communion and that friendship and that presence of God is being with us before we can do or accomplish anything is the crucial part of the story. If you miss that, you're missing the story. You're going to get in a weird kind of relationship with God where you feel like he either owes you something or that you can never get into his presence. And if you're like me, you go back and forth between both. But instead, he desperately wants to be with you, and he's going to come up with a way to deal with it. Which gets to the next point I want to make quick. Our sin was no doubt our fault. Don't be like, well, he shouldn't have put the snake in the garden. Who are you to tell God what he's supposed to do? It was our fault. It was our choice to rebel. But God is taking responsibility to deal with it. So not only is he going to meet us at this sanctuary, we meet the Israelites there, but listen, it's his glory, and then he will be the one that consecrates the temple, that gives it all that it needs. And so when we see all those little commandments, the tedious commandments that I skipped over, you're like, goodness me, this is boring. The Israelites would have been consumed with gratitude and a sense of privilege for this. The other people, uh, the surrounding them, pagan nations, they were dealing with fickle, selfish gods that were standoffish, that were uh, inconsistent, that went up and down, that were unclear about who they are and what they wanted. And the Israelites would have been overwhelmed with gratitude to know that this God would tell them exactly what he needs and what he wants from him. And he is going to be the one not to say, you're going to have to work all this out if you want to be in my presence again. He's saying, I'll give it to you. I'm going to tell you what to make. I'm going to tell you where the sacrifices are coming from. I'm going to, he gives everything. The whole world says, so he's going to give the bulls. He's going to give the lambs. He's going to be the means of the offering. He's going to be the one to make that space holy. He's doing all the work. He's going out of his way to provide the means to deal with our sin. It's not just like, okay, you want to be with me. You need to do some work. Here's a list one, two, three. I'm going to be over here. When you finish that list, you can come join me. He's like, I'm going to come here and I'm going to make this space ready for us so that you can commune with me as a full, healthy, holy human being. It's going to take some work, but don't worry. I'm going to be the one that does it. This theme will remain throughout the rest of the gospel, which we'll see. Third quick point from this, that God will deal with our sin, but he refuses to accomplish it without humanity. Now, remember, creation, he makes the world and quickly gets human beings to participate with him. 
He's got Adam and Eve naming animals, giving function to the animals. He's got Adam and Eve telling the garden, keeping it. Remember, they're priestly kings. They're uh, charged with the task to be co-creators with God. And that theme is throughout the whole Bible, where nothing God does, he does that human beings. Everything God will do, he goes through human beings. And so even though he's providing the sanctuary, he's going to give the offerings because all things are his and come from his. He's now going to charge them out of an invitation to participate in the redemption process. He refuses to just wipe a magic wand because from the beginning, it's about partnership with God. It's not just we receive from God or we, he wants us to join and participate with them. And so even his redemptive moves partner with humanity. And so he then charges them, you are going to make the sanctuary. He's providing everything, but you're going to partner with me in it. You are going to make an offering and you're going to participate in dealing with atoning for sin to make me be able to dwell here again. So he invites us to participate, but don't get it twisted. It's still God that does the work. He does most all of it. I reminded of a story of my friend, Hair Bear, who is in Guatemala. He's a Guatemalan missionary, native of Guatemala, that I partnered with the ministry of my former church. And uh, he just, his father just passed away, and he's kind of mourning that right now. But it reminded me of a story that he shared about his father when he was really young, and his dad wanted to paint the house. And he let his son, Hair Bear, who was like six or seven at the time, paint the house with him. Now, parents, man, you've been around young kids, you know what it means when they want to help. And it creates a lot more work, doesn't it? And so Heber's dad was like, you can help me paint the house. And Heber, and I'm a grown man, and I don't know how to paint. You know, if I were just in painting, I was like, you know, why don't you do something else? Maybe the dishwasher, back in the house, I'll paint. But Heber's dad let him paint the house. And when he got done, of course, Heber's dad does all the work. But then he looks at Heber and he says, and look what we did, man. We helped paint the house. We painted the house together. And it's like give Hair Bear a sense of dignity that he got to participate in something that someone much stronger and more capable than him did. And that's how God operates, where he is all the way doing the work, but he graciously allows human beings to do it with him. That's the, all of the Christian life. And so now let's see how these things that happened like 12 to 1400 years before Jesus find their fulfillment in the gospel in Jesus. Or those would be like, man. How can I get here? There's lots of Old Testament between there, and you're like, usually that's the most confusing portion. But if you keep those things in mind, you will find them throughout. So if you remember, the two big tensions are God desperately wants to be with us, but sin is in the way. Those are competing tensions. And so with Jesus, what do we see in the birth narrative of the gospel? That they call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Look at y'all. Y'all know your Bibles, man. It means God with us. That the Lord, the one who made all things, wanted to make a tent and dwell among us. We're going to talk about Jesus as the temple next week, where he becomes the temple, the overlap of sacred space. And so his desire is to first be with us before he's doing anything else. It says he's Emmanuel, God with us. He's ready on the move, relentlessly chasing us to be with us again. And he did that in the birth and life of Jesus. But he's not just there to be with us. We remember we are contaminated with sin, and he's the one that's got to deal with it. And so he goes on the cross, and if you would wish, why do we have to have this big bloody cross? God should just wave a wand. He's got to deal with the sin that fully acknowledges it and the costliness of it. To show that how costly sin is, 
how destructive it is. He allows sin to be brought to a full point on the cross where the cross holds a mirror up to humanity and says, this is how far gone you are. You're in utter rebellion against me. And the culmination of all that is that we would, as Paul says, crucify the Lord of glory. That when God in his full presence on earth encountered humanity and their wickedness and rebellion, humanity killed him. We crucified the Lord of glory. So we were contaminated with sin, but God dealt with it anyway. And so he let sin do its worst to him on the cross and absolutely destroy his body, kill God, and put God in the grave. But when three days later he rose from the dead, he overcame sin, all of its causes, all of its effects, all of the, the repercussions of it. And what happens right then? You know, Matthew, the temple veil is torn. In the temple, we have a veil that shows a separation between heaven and earth because there cannot be full overlap. Sin stood in the way, but the temple was torn, allowing, because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, allowing the Spirit of God to flood creation to be made available for free again. But not for free from God, for free from us. Because he paid the price. It was him that did it. But yet, he refuses to accomplish this without humanity. He became flesh. He did not come from the sky. He did not shoot like a plane across the sky. Be like, you're forgiven now. He became a human being because he refuses to do anything in the world, even forgive and redeem the sin of humanity without going through humanity. But because of humanity's failure, he had to become human. You see how all the things come together, Mark? Goodness that blows my mind, man. We got the good. Our, best, our story is the best. Sometimes I feel like the church doesn't want to tell that story. Man, we got the goods, dude. It all, it all fits together. You're like, man, I love when a good thing works out like that. But that's how the Bible is. It is self-correcting. If you're like, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. It's kind of weird. It kind of goes up and down. No, it doesn't. It tells a full-blown, complex story where these beautiful themes of God's desire to be with us and yet humanity's rebellion converge on the cross and truly that with he's ready to be with us again. But I'm not done yet. So we're talking about so what? <laughs> so here's what about this matters right now. Because our stories that we're living in that surround our culture lack an honest and holistic diagnosis of sin and have lost the capacity to forgive. This story does that. And our culture needs it now more than ever. Because our culture has two kind of ways of dealing with it. It's that there's strict accountability with no grace to everyone outside of us or off our side. And there's full-blown denial of sin in us and that's in ourselves. And the church has been a significant culprit in that horrendous hypocrisy. And yet the gospel gives us the other way around. Where there is accountability toward everyone. The cross tells the whole world that they are dead in their sins. You're the same, I'm the same, we're all equal in that we all require the death of the Lord of the Son, the Son of God to be forgiven. Everybody is going to be held accountable, but there's grace for everybody. And so the gospel gives us permission to be fully honest about our sin with grace, ready to receive grace from ourselves, and fully honest about the world's sin, but give grace for them. Because our culture has lost the capacity to forgive. When I see someone get a brand new job, and then they're like, oh, wait a minute. Ten years ago, you said this thing one time, you don't get a job anymore. That is a miserable culture that loses the capacity to forgive. And the church, if she would be honest, 
has a story to tell that says, hey man, we are all open and broken here. We're all in the, in the path of renewal. We can function not like hit a group that hides our sin, but function more like an AA meeting. Where we say, hey man, we all sit here and we're all trying our best to, to, to beat it today. And we're going to mess up, but we trust God's going to forgive us. And when then we can forgive each other. And we hope that the world who desperately needs healing of their sin and an ability to forgive those that sin against them, maybe if they hear our story, it might give a chance for God to help that out. We can tell that story. That, that is what our culture needs. If we would be uh, willing enough to do it, honest enough with our own junk, and gracious enough with other people's junk. We don't have to control and judge and diagnose other people's junk because God's going to do that for them. The cross will reveal it to them. And we have a chance to be honest about our own because we don't have to fear what they will do to us. And then in the process of that, we are a community of healing and forgiveness that says, if you want to be healed, come on. We get the chance to do that. And so how do we respond to that? We have ancient Christian practices that tell these stories that we participate in. Sometimes it's rote. And that's okay. Rote participation eventually gets that story through our skulls. And so think about how what Christians have always done embraces these themes of a God who is chasing after us to be with us and in us, but a sin that stands in the way. We start with baptism. That's the way into the family. And what happens at baptism? You have to have someone else wash you to realize that you can't wash yourself. You have to let someone symbolically dunk you down and say, I couldn't do it without someone else intervening on my behalf. It's symbolic and reflective of the fact that we need God to do that. There's no way I'm going to go get myself a bath and you all, I'll tell you, I'll let you know that I'm clean now. If someone else has to dunk you. And so we have this weird ritual that we will get somebody a bath in public in front of everybody. And our community is like, what are they doing with their water? And but we do that to symbolize that we are in utter dependence on God from our brokenness, but we go down to that water, come back up with hearts regenerated because the Spirit of God is willing to flood our physical bodies and forgive our sins and let us have no condemnation for our sin, make us right with God permanently, and allow the process of sanctification to begin. And everybody comes in that direction. I remember a friend that I had in Cincinnati that had a, a, a unique struggle. I don't want to go into much detail about his struggle, but it was, it was unique. It was like the kind of struggle you wish you didn't have. But he had that struggle, and I was like, man, do you ever feel like, you know, you're kind of jealous? Like, man, I wish that I didn't have this one, and I had someone else's. He just looked at me and said, Anthony, everybody's got to come and die. He had a sense that there was no everybody coming into the family has got to lay their life down and die. Die to themselves open-handedly confess our sin and our weakness and receive divine mercy. No way into the family otherwise. You can't get in otherwise. Everyone coming to the family is getting dumped in order to reflect and remember that that's you only got in here because the Spirit of God did what he did through Jesus on the cross, and now you're welcome to come in free. And so we do that when people come in Jesus as a way, not only for that person, but to tell everyone else in this family, remember your day. It's like when you go to a wedding, when I do a wedding message, I know full well that couple is not paying attention to a lick what I'm saying to them. But everybody else there who is married, they might be reminded, like, oh, yeah, I remember I made that promise a long time ago. And our community there, even those who aren't married, say, oh, yeah, we remember that this is who we are, that we have a God who makes this kind of promise to us, and we need to foster that kind of commitment with each other. And so baptism is the way we remind uh, each other of that truth. 
but it gets into other disciplines of the family too. Think about prayer, where even though we don't have to go to temple anymore to like slay bulls and stuff to be with God, our prayer has within it a regular confession. When Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he says that we need to say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us in order to remember that we do not take it lightly that we get to have communion with the living God. It came by way of him diagnosing and dying for our sin at great cost. It took him a lot to forgive us. And so when we pray, we can go to God at any time, but we confess with honesty, knowing with trust that all of our sin has been forgiven on the cross already. But it is an active reminder that we are not pure in ourselves. It helps us never forget that even today we need the blood of Jesus more than ever. But that confession doesn't end with prayer. It doesn't just go between us and God where our relationship with God reflects this story, but then our relationship with each other. James 5.16 says we need to confess our sin to other people in the community so that we would be healed. And so this is a part that American church doesn't do very well. We idolize privacy a little bit, like, oh, my sin's over here, your sin's over there. Let's just tell people that we're good. You good, I'm good, good. We don't need to go further than that. That's not how works, though. He says that if we would confess to each other, healing would happen. And I know this in my life for sure. I've had accountability partners for years where I would drive 25 minutes in the wrong direction away from my work in order to meet with a friend where I sit across the table from him. I download my weaknesses for a half hour. He says, man, you need some help, but I love you, and so does God. And then he would download his weaknesses for half an hour, and I'm like, man, that sounds rough, but God loves you, and I do too, and we're going to be good, right? And so then the rest of the next two weeks is us growing in those weaknesses. But when we do that, it kind of takes away the scandal of our own weakness. We're not tempted to shove it down and like pretend it doesn't exist. We bring it out to the open, and a person who loves me looks me in the eye and says, I love you, brother, and God still delights in your life. And it gives me a tangible memory in my brain that someone, a person, could handle my weakness and love me anyway. And I can transfer that memory onto God. Just say, that's what God does when he forgives. And so we get then a diagnosis of our sin right after, within that, a forgiveness of his presence with us, but not without diagnosing our sin. And then dealing with each other's sins, right? We're going to be doing that a lot, dealing with each other's sins. And in Matthew 6 and 7, he talks about getting rid of the sawdust in our own eye in order that we can diagnose the plank in another person's eye. Well, we are in the regular routine of, of calling out people's faults, of calling that out, but coming from a place of humility because we're dealing with our objective. And so we become a community that doesn't tolerate sin. It's not okay. It's literally not okay. But God loves us anyway. It makes a safe place for us to engage in it together. And finally, our evangelism and a missional justice to the world that insists on accountability, that tells a story that God will come and judge the world one day for its sin, but there is full means for that to be forgiven and wiped away if only they would receive Jesus again. We are on mission in order to tell that story to the world and they need it back. Just as you need it back or else you wouldn't be here on Memorial Day, Race Day weekend. You're here because of that story. And so ultimately, too, finally, we land with communion, where every single week those themes converge, where we tell the story of the cross and resurrection, how it is a fulfillment of those tensions between God's desire to be with us, but our sin standing in the way, and we receive again and remember his, his love for us and his forgiveness of us. So let's pray, and then we're going to celebrate that today.